It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. This episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the amazing platform I've been using to record the audio and video versions of this show since March 2020. It is the number one tool I recommend to podcasters. So if you're thinking of starting your own show or optimizing one you already have, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. WELLEVATOR is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. There are many directions that I want to go in today with the podcast guest, and I wanted to begin with something on his website, which says, piece by piece, I picked up the parts of me I'd lost along the way of life, restored parts of my marriage I didn't even know were broken, and forgave my family. I had to look at that little hurt boy inside myself and even forgive him too. It wasn't his fault, and he deserved no more blame. And that is so beautifully written and open and vulnerable. And you have such a beautiful story that I'm looking forward to diving into more. And before we get into that, I forgot to ask you before we started recording how to pronounce your name fully. So if you could pronounce it now. My name is Isaac Jamal, but I like people to call me Zuki. Oh, right. Yes. That's the name that my family calls me and it just touches a piece of my heart, my soul. When people call me Zuki, I get to know people, they get to know me. But my legal name's Isaac Jamal, but please feel free to call me Zuki. Okay. Well, I'll call you that on this episode. And I'm curious, where did that come from? What's the origin of that nickname? Our background is Middle East. My parents both grew up in Lebanon. And at least on my father's side, Turkey is our ancestry. My great-grandfather was a soldier in the Ottoman Empire, died actually serving the empire. And my grandfather's name was Zaki. And our tradition is we name after the grandfather. And my name is Isaac, but Zaki Isaac turned into a nickname called Zuki. And I speak three languages. I speak Arabic, I speak Hebrew, and I speak English. And that was just a name that my parents called me, and that's what stuck. My wife calls me Zuki. My family calls me Zuki. Everyone calls me Zuki. My friends, you know, when I started actually coaching and my friends saw Isaac Jamal out there, they were like, Zuki, right? It's Zuki. Yes, it's Zuki. (laughs) You know, it's funny you bring that up. I'm so glad that you clarified that because I, in general, my brain will get confused about pronunciations and what to call people. And I need a lot of clarity around that. And there's actually someone else who's been a new acquaintance of mine. And he goes by a nickname as well. But I always stumble. I'm like, does he want me to call me that? Does he want me to call him that all the time? Does he ever want someone to refer to his first name? I mean, it can actually be a bit confusing. So I think it's actually important in general for us to remind people of our preferences. I mean, this ties into so many things, especially 
evolving right now in society is we can't assume what somebody wants to be called and assume things about their identity. And I'm practicing asking someone. And I think it's so wonderful that you have this story that you have an opportunity to continue to share with people what your preferences are and the meaning behind it. Because maybe that brings you so much more joy to be called Zuki versus Isaac. I would rather call you what you want to be called, but also call you something that lights you up in the way that I can tell as you're just telling that story. And you also have this beautiful history behind it that keeps you tied to your roots. And I've noticed that that's such a big part of your story, just the evolution of who you became and how you got there. And I think it's so beautiful the way that you've told your story on your website. And as I mentioned, the openness of the pain points and that and what you've had to go through and how that's evolved into your career and also your personal life, which are very intimately tied together. You speak a lot about your marriage in particular, which is one of the big reasons I wanted to have you on this show, because I think the way that you've articulated how you've worked on your relationship and also I'm sure with your children as well is so beautiful because most of us end up struggling with that at some stage in our life, whether it's with our immediate family or our romantic partners. I have so much to say. First, I want to say thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity to be able to speak and to speak to people and try to help people as much as possible. It's very interesting as you opened up, Zuki and Isaac are two different people. Part of my transition has been growing up and identifying myself, say, in the workspace in my late teens and 20s as Isaac. And there was this mask that I had to put on living in New York. My family had a very successful children's clothing business. I was very corporate. At one point, I was a VP of merchandise and design, had 103 people working under me. And this persona sourced in significance and achievement and wanting so much. That was Isaac. And through the transition that you were describing or reading, Zuki emerged because that's who I am. I am Zuki. And that is the core of my heart and my soul. And it's amazing to me that a name can trigger us. And some of my training brings us to that, that sometimes we have so much multiple personality inside of our brains, every human being. We have the wild person. We have the responsible one. We have the financial head. We have so many different voices and personalities in there. And identifying them by a name isolates it and allows us to say that in certain areas, I might be an idealist. I might be very liberal in some areas of my life, but I might be conservative in other areas of my life. And sometimes we can identify it with a name. It's so useful for us to be able to see the difference in those people because those multiple personalities grow at different times in our lives and different levels. And the goal is try to balance them all out and kind of have them all in a cohesive agreement. I sometimes find myself in my own mind saying, do we all agree? You know, it's something that I'm conscious about that there are certain voices in my head and everyone's head that tells you pros, cons, go with your gut, whatever the conversation might be in your own mind. It's, do we all agree? And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. But it's funny, when all my personalities do agree, those are the moments where I know that I'll be successful. Those are the moments where I know that I have the drive and the passion to be able just to get to the end. I find it amazing, you know, like you could just introduce somebody and there's so much to say about it. So that quote that you had just read at the beginning of the podcast, there's so much and so much depth that goes into those words. Me as a child, I mean, you can find this on my 
website, I was molested at seven. We lived in an apartment building and the apartment building next door had a friend. I was seven years old. I had asked my mom if I was able to go over him. And she said, sure. And we had a front window and she watched me come out of the building and walk into the other building. And she thought I was okay. And as I started to walk into the building, the staircase was just to the right of the second door that you had entered into. And as I got halfway up the stairs, and he had only lived on the second floor, there was a man that walked into the building and asked me if I knew if there was another way to get upstairs. And I did. There was a back staircase. And I said, I did. Would you mind showing me? And I said, sure. I went up with him. And to be honest, a lot of the details of what happened, I don't remember. That part of the story I do. But somehow he got me to the top floor right next to the roof or the door that you're able to access the roof and unclothed me. He unclothed and had gotten on top of me. I don't even remember how I got out. I don't remember the details. There was so much fear in that moment that I do remember. I just don't remember the details. And my mother later on, probably when I was 22 or 23, and I was really dealing with it with some help, with some coaching at that point. And I asked her, how did I get out? And she said to me, you urinated on him. You actually peed on him. And that startled him. And that gave you enough space for you to get out. But the feeling that I have lived with my whole life, up until I'd say recently, probably the last few years where I've really been able to release and let go is how did I let him do that to me? And I know that so many people that have been molested or sexually abused have this difficulty of blaming themselves, of how did I allow this person to do this to me? While I was doing my work at 22, I had a brilliant coach and she had told me to write everything I wanted to write about this person, what I felt, what justice would look like what I would like God to do to him or how did it affect my life. And I took the time and I remember crying intensely when I was writing it. And then in session, she made me read it and then we burnt it, which gave me some closure. But I still not understood until two decades later that it was something that I carried around. It was the way I interacted with people. I was always a confident, good-looking man, great with people, always connecting, lots of friends. I was very popular. There was always this underlining allowance that I would allow people to take advantage of me in different ways. And I was able to do the work, the hard work, to be able to really associate it back to that moment, that if I can allow this person to take advantage of me, and this is a thought in my mind that's brewing all the time, yes, in my career, even with family, I allowed them to take advantage of me in ways that I now would never allow someone to be able to speak to me or ask of me. I'd be able to be very comfortable in saying, I'm not too comfortable with that or no. For people out there that are listening that have family members, friends, they themselves who've been molested, we think uh, while we're going through the process that we're not affected. Truth is, is everything in our life is affected from that moment. If you just give it a simple thought of my innocence was taken away at seven years old. It was gone. It was stripped of me. So later on, and you can read this on the website as well, you know, with my story is, yeah, when you're doing drugs, drinking alcohol, you're going out to clubs and you're going out to partying, you think there is no association with that. But if I have no innocence, then everything becomes okay. And that's the place in my life that I was. I was working with my family, making really good money. I mean, making a few hundred thousand dollars a year. I was pretty successful 
got married, bought a home, and then bought a second home. After a little while, there was a relationship within the family dynamic that was very toxic to me. Again, allowing someone to, guess, bully me, right? Just bully me. He bullied me, labeled me, told me I'd never be successful. I'd never end up being a leader. And this really affected me. And after a while, won't go through the whole story of how I got there, but I left. And with a life of a family business that did probably a quarter of a billion dollars, it was a very successful business. And when I left, something hit me that I was not prepared for. I had no identity. My significance, my persona or Isaac was this person who was amazing in sales, amazing in communication, amazing in corporate structures and achieving and making money. Now Zuki had no idea who he was. Who am I? If I'm not attached to my family, then who am I? And it was a four and a half year trek and journey of me probably being at the lowest point ever in my life. And it wasn't until I did a little bit of a spiritual journey to Israel and I met my today partner and just fell in love with helping people. Him and I started an organization which is called Bet Hashem in Hebrew. In English, that means God's house. And we help kids at risk, young boys at risk. And we were working with them. And you know, at the lowest point in my life, I now was listening and advising these young teenagers as to what to do with their lives. And I quickly realized that I wasn't advising them, but I was advising myself. And that's really where, I mean, I was a psych major in college, but then ventured onto business. But that's really where the coach was born. The healing process for me was at the beginning. It took probably a decade or so for me to actually really dive into all the details. There's so much from that statement. Like I tell you my whole life story from that, those couple of sentences, you know, you mentioned my wife. Yeah. During that time I was married. I had two kids. I had another kid on the way. We were married for about seven years or so. I thought I was winning at life. I was making a lot of money. I was very successful. We had a great family name. Coming from a traditional background, that's what men did. Men provided and women took care of the home. And that was the dynamic. And I thought I was great at it. I mean, you know, I had a great income. Kids were great. You know, we have two and one on the way. And my wife comes to me and she says to me, um, Zook, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay, what's going on? And she says, I'd like us to go see a therapist. And I said, for whom? And she said, for us. What are you talking about? I said, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. We're great. She goes, no, I'm really not happy. And I think that we need help. And when I heard that, and I'm such a sensitive person and love my family so much, I said, absolutely, I would go. And we did go to a therapist. I can remember it clear as day that we sat in the office and this older man started talking and said, nice to meet you and what's going on. And I gave my wife the opportunity to talk. And for about 15 or 20 minutes, my wife was talking about how unhappy she was. But that's an understatement, how miserable and lonely she was. And she just had no connection to me whatsoever. And I'm not there for the kids and I'm not there for her. And I'm really no support and I'm flying to Israel and I'm doing all these things. And she just doesn't know if she wants to be married to me. And I'm like, what? I was so overwhelmed with emotion and shock that the tears started to just ball up in my eyes and I just started to cry. And it was uncontrollable crying. And therapist at the time had to stop the session and said, are you okay? I said, no. He says, what's wrong? And I said, I have no idea what she's talking about. I don't know what she's saying. Everything that I do, I do for my family. 
there's no ego here. I want to provide for my family. I want to do for my family. I'll never forget. She looked at me dead in the eyes and said to me, how can you do that? You're never around. And I left. My mind was blown. And I left, I remember, really angry. And not angry at her, but angry at my family, angry at God. I was angry at tradition. I was angry at everything that no one had told me what marriage was about. And I remember leaving that session and I went to my dad and I was like, dad, and may he rest in peace. He passed about six years ago. I miss him tremendously. And I went to him. I said, dad, how come you didn't tell me about this? He goes, tell you about what? The older generations kind of, it was this unspoken rule of especially Middle Eastern tradition of the guy is this and the girl is that. And I don't know what you're talking about. So I said, I got to learn. I got to educate myself. And I dove into biblical texts, you know, some Jewish deep philosophy. And I researched everything that I could, Esther Perel, and so many different facets of relationships. And I learned that there's something called a woman's emotional needs. It was a mind-blowing idea that I was responsible now for fulfilling my wife's emotional needs. And no one had ever told me that before. And the more I dove into it, the more I practiced and the more we became a unit, the more we became one, the more we became symbiotic. We're still very different people with different philosophies and different ideas and sometimes different beliefs, but we've learned how to make that work together. And in my journey, I've been able to identify that and turn it into a science. You know, I'll forever eternally be grateful to Tony Robbins, who I've been watching on infomercials when he started 30 or 40 years ago, probably. And he taught me the science of relationships. And all this happened within, I want to say, an amount of maybe five years. I was in this furnace and I was, you know, a piece of iron that was being molded at this point and it hurt like hell. And it formed who I am today. This transition of Isaac back to Zuki and who I was and who I am and being okay, being vulnerable, being okay, being whoever and whatever I am and knowing that I'm enough and having the ability to be able to teach and life coach is something that we hear very often today. You know, that's your occupation. But to me, I honestly feel like I'm a teacher. And my mission, if God would allow me to do it, is just to help people find shortcuts, educate people so that they wouldn't have to suffer or go through pain as I did through my life. I've been able to harness it. I've been able to use it as my strength. And Tony Robbins says this, and it's true for me, that it wasn't physical pain, but it was spiritual pain. And the only way to become spiritually strong is to be able to go through that spiritual pain. And when you come through the other side, using that pain as your anchor, as your engine, as your rocket ship, that's what makes it all worth going through it. When you can help another person, when you can just be able to assist or advise or be there for someone, a hug or a kiss, it, that's what my life is you know, that's what my life is all about. And that's the journey that I'm so excited to continue to take. I know that was very long-winded, but a couple of sentences from a website can say a lot to a person. So yeah, everything you said is true and it's ingrained deep in my heart and soul. Well, it's pretty amazing. You know, I thought I was just picking a random part of your website that resonated with me, but clearly it really resonated with you too. And I imagine the listener, because there's so much behind it, 
And thank you so much for sharing that journey that you've been on and also the beginning parts of it that are tough. You know, before we started recording today, I I asked you if you were comfortable sharing any of that because, you know, sexual assaults is a really tough thing, but it's also extremely common. And I wouldn't be surprised if the more time goes on, we'll find it's perhaps even more common than we realize because I feel like our society is just now growing to be more comfortable talking about something so painful. Whereas before, kind of like what you mentioned, we may hide those things because of shame. We may think that we did it and so we could never possibly acknowledge it because we're taking so much personal responsibility for it. And when people like you share that and also acknowledge that it wasn't your fault, it's so powerful. Took a lot of years to actually have that resonate and me believe it, that it wasn't my fault, but it wasn't my fault. I bet. And it's an amazing thing because there are likely people who carry that through their whole life without even realizing it. For sure. If there's anyone listening that has blamed themselves, I've worked with people that have had siblings molest them for years and they take so much responsibility and they blame themselves. And if there's anything that I could tell anyone that's gone through any type of that experience is if you're having a difficult time believing in yourself, I'm sure it has something to do with that moment that you've experienced in your life. It took me, like I said, over four decades for me to be able to truly confidence I had, right? This outward confidence I had, but this inner I'm enough piece that we're looking for so that I can live my life in alignment, to be able to live my life with being connected to my gut, my heart, my soul, that didn't come until I was able to resolve that moment and say that it wasn't my fault and that I bear no responsibility, but it's the responsibility of the person that actually molested me. It's the responsibility of the person that had taken advantage of a seven-year-old kid. It's tough because most people don't want to be sensitive to this type of conversation. They don't understand it. Most people don't want to talk about it. You said the word shame. It's funny because I do say a lot of the times that in our generation, you know, modern day 2022, there's two things that you can visit in a museum. One is respect and the other one is shame. Our children don't grow up with shame and respect, but yes, there's a shaming feeling. And most people that I know that have gone through something like that have first been self-destructive and then had to emerge like a phoenix to be able just to emerge as themselves. And unfortunately, so many people don't emerge. So many people do not make it. So many people stay stuck or become the victim or allow people to take advantage of them. And that's just, that's heart-wrenching. You know, that's just so painful. There is what to do. There is strength that can even be taken from a situation like that. You can turn that around. And my way, my solace, my heart is, if I'm able to help one person, then it was worth going through it. If I'm able to help one person self, you know, suffer less, my passion and my love is marriage and relationships. But overall, I would say that Zuki just wants to touch as many people as possible so that if I can help them suffer less, then that's what I want to do. And it was all worth it. The pain, the self-identity, the drugs, you know, all the crazy things that I've done, it's all been worth it so that I can now be able to piece myself together and to be able to share what I've learned on my journey so that I can just put out a helping hand. Which is such a beautiful thing. And something else you said earlier was also very profound. 
I think it's really important to circle back to because to my memory, I don't have a situation that took away my innocence. I actually remember when I was a teenager, somebody told me I was innocent in a way that I thought there was something wrong with me. Like, oh, I'm too innocent. And I remember like them saying that to me, I'm feeling very confused. And as you were sharing your story, I recognized, wow, like I had the privilege of innocence. I may still have it. I didn't have that type of trauma, at least not that my memory recalls. Sometimes I think there could be things that happened in life that you block out, which is another coping mechanism. But one thing is that recently... I went through a traumatic experience and it was a really fascinating thing to witness myself going through at this stage in my life where I've spent so many, done so much self-work and studied psychology and trauma. And as I was going through it, I was witnessing my brain coping. And I actually just yesterday read something about how the brain works and it reminded me of when you were sharing your story of not being able to recall something that's how the brain handles those situations. It shuts down. And that was a huge part of what I went through. I can only remember certain parts of the experience. And then afterwards, it was like almost like you were describing too, where there was like two parts of me. There was the part that went through it. And then there was like this part of my brain that was watching myself go through it and observing it and feeling so confused because it was like logic versus emotion. I was looking at it thinking, okay, I know this happened to me, but was it as bad as I thought it was? And then over and over again, it was like, I had to remind myself it was really bad. But part of my coping mechanism was like almost trying to convince myself that what I went through wasn't as traumatic as it felt. It was fascinating. But that in itself, I wonder, is a coping mechanism, right? Like trying to overanalyze things. It is. As human beings, the one thing that is constant in all of us is fear. And dealing with that fear of an experience, not being enough, having a relationship or a marriage that's not working, having maybe a special needs child or sibling, these things, there's what we call normal, right? We're all not normal, right? There is no normalcy out there. And we all tend to, our first reaction is to protect ourselves. It's the caveman. It's kind of just like safety and security and coaching would call certainty. We want certainty. We want certainty in our lives to say that I'm safe, I'm going to be okay. And when something like that would happen to somebody, then we don't feel safe. And it's a quick reminder to, there is no certainty. And that might be an extreme idea, but nothing's certain. Everything changes. The weather changes. We change, we get older, our skin whittles away. Not sure at the time if it's a couple of months or so or weeks, but we change. It's are we going to accept the change or not? And when we go through traumatic experiences, we just want to find the footing that we were on just a moment ago. And just in a moment, in a moment, everything changes. And that's life. And most of us don't want to cope with that. Most of us don't want to deal with that at all. One of the most famous quotes is the quality of your life is always going to be equal to the amount of uncertainty you can handle. And I'm often caught saying, you don't know what's going to happen 10 seconds from now. Living our lives moment by moment also puts us in a state of gratitude. It also puts us in a state of, I don't know if I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning. Don't take that for granted. You know, we were doing a little thing here at home. I think it was two nights ago when my son, he's nine, And he jumped into bed with me and my wife, and maybe it was an Instagram post or something they were doing in school. I have no idea. But he says, name 20 things that you're grateful for in less than a minute. 
And for some, it's challenging to do that. I have to think about the big things, my home, my family, my job. But what about the little things like my toothbrush? Oh, I have running water in my house, (laughs) right? We have refrigeration. You know, we don't have to go to an outhouse. I can walk. I can see. I can hear. All these little things that we might take for granted is not for certain because there's so many people out there that don't have these luxuries. You know, we're always looking for more. Some people want fame. Some people want wealth. Some people want health. You know, it's different for all of us, but there's so much to be grateful for. And if we put our mindset in being grateful all the time, that's where we live our best life because we get to appreciate every morning. It's cliche, right? It's enjoy the journey. What does that really mean? What does that mean? That means try to be as present as possible in the now because there might not be a later. And I'm not trying to be morbid here, but I'm trying to teach an idea of when someone walks with gratitude. And I was coaching a couple yesterday and I said to them, you're not loving each other as if you might lose each other. You're not putting in that effort of, you know, they're here. We're in this relationship. I don't have to love you with the mindset of I might lose you. But what type of love would we experience if we did approach our relationships that way? Love the person you're with as if you're going to lose them. You know, so many human beings have, have dealt with loss. You know, we know what that feels and we want to avoid that as much as possible. But to live your life. With that thought process and appreciate every moment, that's a life I want to live. Vulnerability. I've learned to be comfortable with vulnerability and being vulnerable and being open and just sharing myself and my story with people. It's very interesting when we are afraid or we want to protect ourselves, we want to control things, for for example, right? People who love certainty in their life, they want to protect themselves. They want to stay safe especially when it comes to feelings and relationships. And I know I've gone on to relationships, but it's so important that in a relationship that if I'm closed off and I'm afraid to be hurt, you will protect yourself from being hurt. But something else comes with that protection. You won't feel joy, playfulness, creativity, passion, because it's all behind the barrier. Vulnerability, as the word is defined, makes me vulnerable. Yes, you can access a part of my emotion that might feel hurt, but it also allows me to feel all those wonderful feelings, happy and sad, playful and creative and passionate and in love. Love is not safe. Love is not a safe place. And that vulnerability, although it is scary, once you step into that, you now gain so much more than what you might lose. Before March 2020, every guest on this show recorded with me in person because I wanted to ensure the highest quality sound possible. But this took extra time and effort to produce, plus it limited me to people who were visiting or living in Los Angeles. When I switched to Zencaster, I realized how much easier remote recording was for me and my guests. Now everyone can easily record studio quality sound from the comfort of their own homes. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com and enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan, which is what I use. I can't wait to hear your show, so send it over to me as soon as it's live. A hundred percent. And that's such an important part. You know, I've studied Brene Brown for many years and just think she is such an important voice out there to talk about vulnerability and shame and a lot of things that we've touched upon. And she's also revealed how much work we have to do 
the more that I study this, and I imagine you're in the same boat, when you get into this teaching, you start to notice not only where you can grow, but I get hypersensitive about the lack of growth and awareness in others. And sometimes that can feel really frustrating. And for me, I actually naturally feel comfortable being vulnerable, but I've struggled a lot with shame in my life. And I've noticed that I get triggered when I am vulnerable and it's not accepted. Especially notice this online because there's so much shame online. There's so much cancel culture and accountability call out culture. And it feels to me (laughs) on certain platforms, especially luckily at the podcast has been a very safe space. But in all my years on platforms like YouTube, every time I post something, I'm anticipating people coming out from the shadows because I've experienced so much of that of how dare you say it like that? You said this wrong. You're wrong about this. You know, I kind of wonder, and I'm curious about your perspective on this. Why are people so quick to point these fingers and ring the bell of shame to one another, either maybe in public, but mostly it's in private. Mostly it's either behind a screen or it's to somebody else through the form of gossip. What has come up for you in your viewpoints on all of this? It's interesting you say that because high vibing people tend to, the antenna of high vibing people feel energy around them. And when I was younger, I didn't really understand that. I thought it was my own energy that I was trying to run from. It's something you can learn how to do is kind of like separate your energies between the people around you or the city that you're in and you. And it takes work. It takes guidance, but it's something that you can do so that you can still feel safe in your own space. To answer your question, people don't like to leave their comfort zone. When you are voicing an opinion, when you are living a life of expression of what you truly believe, you're challenging people to do the same and they're not prepared for that. People are not prepared to change. They want their routine to be as routine as possible. We just went through quarantine last year. And a lot of people stayed home, right? I think the average weight of people that they gained was about 20 or 22 pounds. But how many people were on Netflix and really happy that everything had just shut down? It might have been concerning, but there was something in the home that made you feel safe. The doors were shut. You were behind the windows. You had your TV. You had the internet. You were watching the news, but you were watching it externally. It wasn't an internal thing. And we like that comfort. You know, my partner and I were just talking last week and he said to me, he goes, yeah, he goes, be honest with you, I think people just want to quarantine and get them. So they're saying that they don't, but all they want to do is they want to sit home, they want to eat and they want to watch Netflix and they don't want to worry about money and they don't want to worry about getting up and being their best. I just want to sit back and be me. And when someone comes along and they say something that might question their growth, because as people, as individuals, we all know how much we can grow and what our potential is and walking into that potential, growing into that potential. And when you're challenging them, you know, it might be something as simple as you're still smoking. And they're like, they're feeling, yes, I'm still smoking, but they're not prepared to make the change. Intellectually, they might be. And this is again, back to where we started in different personalities. Intellectually, I might want to stop drinking. I want to stop smoking. I want to stop gambling. I want to lose weight, but we haven't brought it to action. We haven't changed our state enough to be able to bring it to action. A lot of the times it's either extreme pain or extreme joy that might make us shift from our comfort zone. But most people's comfort zones is very small. When you broaden your horizons, 
that means I have to now accept different people. I have to not judge others from where their backgrounds are or where they come from, what their beliefs are. And that's asking a lot from people. (laughs) They're not prepared to do that. And there are people like you who want to do the work, who want to grow who want to have some type of regimen day by day where they know they're accessing growth, whether it's our health mentally or physically or emotionally. I always go back to your relationships. Your relationships are not going to create themselves. They have to be created with intent and it's work and you have to show up every day. And for people who just want things to just kind of stay the same, that's threatening. You're threatening their existence and you quickly become an enemy. So I hope that properly described my perspective on when challenge when you show up with people who just and to me you know I'm a, I'm of age at this point and I'll be 50 on April 8th and I'm of age where okay <laughs> you know <laughs> okay <laughs> you do you I'll do me you know what I'm saying I'm not out there selling where if you found me at 25 or 30 I would be talking to you about everything about my life, trying to sell you everything that my way is, you got to see this and I want to educate you and I want you to so much have this. But on the baseline, on the foundation is if someone doesn't want help, there's nothing you can do. That's the prerequisite. I've told clients who've been willing to pay me upwards of five figures of to do some coaching with them. And I'll say the first thing you need to do is bring consciousness. If you can bring consciousness, get the first base. Get consciousness, bring it to first base, I'll get you all the way home. But without consciousness, without a desire, a passion, a want, a real, true, fixed mind on I'm going to get there, people will just revert back to what I like to call their emotional home. If you're a certainty person under stress, you're going to want certainty. And if you're an uncertain person and you need change and you got to run, you know, fight or flight type of thinking, you're going to run. And if it's significance, when you feel down, you're going to go out there and you're going to make yourself feel good. It's just something that if we fix it, will bring us together. And that's going to have to start with us looking at where we're similar as opposed to where we're different. And like I said, most people don't want to do that. Well, that actually leads me to something else I saw in your story that I wanted to touch upon because what you're speaking about here is a lot of these differences and how sometimes when somebody perceives us as being different, they may feel less than and they may use their own coping mechanisms to try to make themselves feel better than. And in your story, you describe some bullying, I believe, in school. Specifically, you shared the story of when you would bring your Middle Eastern food to school. And at this particular time in your life, you didn't have many school clothes. And you said the hem of my we pants. Just we just didn't have much money at all. <laughs> right. And you were going to, I think, a more affluent school at that time. And the hem of your pants rode higher than what was fashionably acceptable to my peers. And I had this whole visual of you as a little kid. And I don't know if this was before or after what you went through at the age of seven. But if it happened afterwards, it just breaks my heart because it's like, gosh, you know, you're struggling with that. But now you're going to a school where it's every kid's kind of worst nightmare to feel like they're different than someone else. And just that sadness, too, of people targeting you because you're eating different food than them because they weren't familiar with your culture. Kids are mean. What are you going to do? Right. I mean, God bless my mom, my dad, my mom, both of them. They just they came with nothing. They really did. You know, my father, I think, had a couple hundred bucks when he came from Lebanon. And as they continued, as a lot of immigrants do, working hard, 
one job, two jobs, sometimes three, and making more, especially my mom, may she live and be well, she always wanted us to have what she didn't. Growing up, almost like a peasant in Lebanon, where they felt that way. They felt that, you know, they would have to borrow clothes. Their emotional state was great, but financially it was difficult. And she didn't want us to go through that. She didn't want us to struggle. And I think that was and still is her massive drive. She's just turned 69 and still works. She's been in corporate America. She's been a major business owner. You know, she's been called the Donna Karen of the children's clothing. She's worked with so many amazing brands like Puma and Donna Karen and Adidas and so many more. And that's what drove her, you know, that I want to give my kids what we didn't have. And those years when we didn't have, it bothered her, but she wanted to switch me from a school where there were more immigrant type kids there to a school that was more community oriented. You know, we grew up in Brooklyn. I come from a Jewish Orthodox background, Middle Eastern. And there, at the time, there was a community there, probably maybe 20,000 people, you know, that came in from different parts of the Middle East, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon. And we lived together. You know, we did everything together. And when she wanted me to be part of this community, she wanted me to be part of this school. I remember, I could probably shed a tear, you know, remembering it, that when she wanted to enroll me in the school, the tuition was more than we can afford. And she was negotiating with the person at the time. And she was negotiating for $100 for the whole year and begging him, please, just please, I need him to come to this school. And I remember that. And it's just a vivid picture in my mind of her negotiating and wanting so much for me to grow and to develop. You know, I spoke Arabic, even though I was born here, born in Brooklyn, April 8th, 1972. And we spoke Arabic at home. That was my primary language. I kind of taught my parents English. And coming to school, I would wear my pants two days in a row, maybe even three times in a row, because that's how much we didn't have or how poor we were. And saving those pants and wearing them as long as you could so you didn't have to invest into more pants. If I could describe it, it's kind of like those TV shows of the affluent LA high schools where everyone's coming in with beautiful clothings and pocketbooks. And it was that type of feeling. And I was always a confident kid. And it was rough, you know? Yeah, I got bullied. They told me that the flood was over and I had no idea what the hell they were talking about. What? What flood? And that would make them laugh even more. Now, I wasn't chosen for any sports. If I was, it was kind of like a pity party, kind of like teachers saying, come on, include him, include him. Like, I'm sure my mom called and said, no, you need to include him into the sports. How can you leave him out? You're like a good mom does. But that was me growing up. And then somewhere, I want to say sixth, seventh, eighth grade, Mom and dad started to make some money and my clothes changed. That's really where, you know, Isaac, I think, was developed. It was that moment where there was a local store called Lester's and we couldn't afford it. And mom took me to Lester's and we now were shopping there. You know, this was the dream. This was like the kind of the dream. We were shopping there. And I remember going into school afterwards with this whole new feeling, you know, oh, I feel really good. But, you know, later on finding out that that was the beginning of the mask, right? That was the beginning of the costume of who I was. And that also developed at the same time. You know, when you're being made fun of what you eat, how you speak, all those things, something did happen inside of me and lit up this achiever, this, I'm going to show you, I'm going to make it one day and you're going to be working for me. You know, that type of, you don't know who you are, I don't know who I am. And did punch out a couple of guys a couple of times. I did get physical about it. Because, you know, you weren't going to mess with me one way or another. I was very strong-headed. 
But by eighth grade, I was like one of the most popular kids. I had really developed. I was a handsome young man. The girls took to me very, very easily. And I had nurtured my feminine side. So, you know, two sisters, three aunts I was really close with. So being part of or understanding what I call today the feminine language was kind of natural to me where I learned that through osmosis. So all of a sudden, this Isaac was created and he was popular. You know, he was a lot of fun and he did a lot of crazy things. I was the guy that ended up on the speaker in the club. You know, I was the guy pulling up everyone from the dance floor. I was the one buying everyone shots. It's amazing. You know, you could jog someone's memory and so much comes back, you know, like so much comes back and how I've developed and how I've changed in my life where the roots of Isaac start at that story. It's because I was bullied. It was because I was not accepted. It was because I was different that I was going to show everybody that I could be more popular than you. And I kind of was pretty successful at it. (laughs) It sounds like it. It's kind of a relatable thing, you know. I still find myself having those moments where things don't go as planned or I feel ashamed or embarrassed and like, immediately wanting to prove myself or immediately thinking like, just wait till blank happens in my life and they're going to regret it. And I'm very curious about how your childhood has shaped you as a parent because you have six daughters. Is that right? They're all girls? No, I have six kids. I have one boy and five girls. Their ages range from 19 to five. Solomon was number five. And my daughter, Jacqueline, who's five now, is our last daughter. How has it transitioned me? That, you know, we we probably need a whole nother hour or two on that one. (laughs) I guess I was married in 2001. We had got married on September 6, 2001. And five days later, the Twin Towers came down and we were in Brooklyn the night before I had told my wife, hey, honey, let's go to Windows of the World. I've never been to the top of the Trade Center. Why don't we go? And then I got my first wife's speech the next morning. I told you I didn't want to go. I told you I didn't want to go. You should listen to me. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) So the beginning, I'd say up until that first six, seven years, I had a very traditional understanding of what marriage is and parenting. And I live my life that way, you know, provide, be the man, be served, be taken care of, be nurtured. And I started raising my kids that way. I remember when Esther and Susan were born, it was very much, you know, that traditional role. After my wife and I started doing the hard work, my whole life changed. The way I had approached my kids, the way I had approached my wife, it was an understanding of these relationships are not going to create themselves. These relationships are not just going to happen just because I'm her dad. She's not going to listen to me and respect me and parent with fear. I knew that I had to instill in my children the belief that I have in them. I often say this to parents because I get a lot of phone calls with parents who might have teens or young adults that they want me to work with. And I generally tell them, be better off working with you than working with them because they're a reflection of you. And if we look at our children in a perspective of whatever I need to do to build that bond relationship with my child is my inner challenges of growth. Those are my growth edges. We can't tolerate them in our children because we can't tolerate them within ourselves and they come out in the children. And the one thing that I've tried really, really hard, and we're still in the process, right? We still have a few teenage daughters growing up. It's still in the process, but To me, and we had a dinner a few weeks ago, and I did. I cried. I spoke to my children. I thought, for me, the only thing I want is for you to know that I believe in you and that you can do anything that you want. 
and that if there's anything that ever happens that I'm the first phone call that you make and thank God my children, you know, car accidents and silly car accidents, nothing serious, but you know, someone said something to me or they treated me that way. I'm the first phone call that they get. And to me, that makes me super proud of myself being a parent and proud of my children. But if I could put this picture in your mind, most people look at their children as a piece of clay and they want to mold their children and shape their children. And they want to create and they have expectations for their children, which especially in this generation gives them a sense of, I'm not enough. Because in older generations, you might even gotten beat, but you knew that behind the hand was a lot of love and a lot of protection and a lot of security. And that was just the way it was. And today, with so much information out there, with so much overload, I find that children are intellectually more mature than their age, but emotionally younger than their age because they don't have the actual experience to go along with the intellect. So when a child tells you you're a liar or no, you go do that, or how about F you? You know, it's difficult for me, especially, you know, coming from, I guess, five decades ago now is we didn't grow up that way. We didn't see that. We saw respect. You felt respect. And as I said earlier, it's something that you could visit in a museum today because there's this kind of like, there's no hierarchy anymore in this relationship. You're my mom or dad, but now you have to prove yourself because I know how you're supposed to act. Because I'm watching all these things, I'm listening to all these things. So there's an expectation for you, parent. And now we're on trial as opposed to the child being on trial. So most people want to develop their children and mold them as they're a piece of clay. But children are really a block of marble, a sculpture that needs to be chiseled out. You need to be exploratory. You need to find out what that soul is made of. What is it filled with? What does it love? What does it hate? And parents, be ready. They're very different than you are. I have six children. Not one is similar to the other. They all like different things. They all speak differently. They all want different things. And to me, if you're in that exploratory mind and you're finding out who they are, as opposed to telling them what they must be, then you know you can have a relationship with your child that will last an eternity and hopefully they pass that down to their child. But if you're constantly questioning them, and I want to make it clear that I understand that most parents are concerned for their children. They're worried. So they're going to call them three times when they're with their friends. Did you get to the movies? When are you coming back? Like there's genuine concern and fear there. And it comes from amazing intent. But are you teaching your child that they're not enough? Don't do it that way. Do it this way. And I go back to the analogy of when you teach a child to walk, you hold their hand until you're confident enough that you can let go. Is there a opportunity where that parent doesn't let go and say, no, no, I'm going to hold your hands until you're 15 or until you're 20 or 25? You know, some of them until 30 and 40. In my beliefs, depending on their own relationship with their spouse, especially women, women will be overbearing moms if they're not satisfied in their relationship with their husbands because they can get all their needs filled. There's unconditional love there. There's variety. There's significance, anything you need as a mom. So once they get older, moms kind of create stuff that isn't there so that they feel needed. And it's mostly because they want to avoid their relationships with their husbands because they've been alone for so long. I've said very often, there's not something called empty nest syndrome. There's a syndrome that you and I haven't connected in 30 years, and now I don't much like you. So we're going to give it a name as empty nest syndrome, but that's not what it is. It's just that we haven't developed this relationship. What should come at the end of the relationship is now that we've been successful in raising our children, I can't wait 
I just can't wait to just get back to spending time with you because I enjoy you so much. To some people, that sounds insane and ridiculous. Let me tell you that in my experience, I felt the same way. The philosophy or the idea of as we're married longer, we drift further apart. It's a lie. Leave it for a minute. It's a myth. It just takes a lot of work and consciousness and effort. You know, a lot of balancing of masculine and feminine energies, understanding each other's languages, but that's not the truth. That's the way it should be. But back to children, find out who your kids are. You know, I can't move on to any other subject without telling you that my dad, may he rest in peace. For the first 25 years of my life, I didn't want to have a relationship with my dad. It wasn't bad. He was the most gentle, sweet man, never laid a hand on me growing up, but I didn't understand him. I didn't get him. He was quiet. He was to himself. He was kind. He spoke to people. I'm like, we got to go out there. We got to achieve. We got to make money. We got to buy buildings. We got to do things. We can't stay like this. He also had a story coming in from Lebanon. He had to leave school at nine years old because his family couldn't afford any food. And he had to go out and work. And he was the one who sacrificed himself and his family to be able to provide. So he had years of life, wisdom, and experience. But when he passed in 2006, I lost my best friend. I lost the person that witnessed me in transformation. And unfortunately, he really didn't get to see my jackal and has never known him. So to me, he's the role model. He's the goal. He's the guy that no matter what I did, and I did a lot of shit, <laughs> no matter what I did, he loved me and believed in me. And that's, you know, once I understood it, once I stepped into it, you know, as a parent, that's what I want to be for my kids. That's the legacy that I want to leave behind is know your strengths. It's okay to take a break and take a vacation. No one's going to crack a whip on your back, but believe in yourself. Know who you are and bring that to others. Share that smile. You know, my uncle always used to say that my face is public property. My smile is public property. So how can I not smile? When someone else is looking at you, I don't own this face. It's public property. So give a smile. You know, that's just something that I guess the Jamal side of my family all have. You'll all find us smiling all the time. No matter how bad it is, we have a mourning ceremony after someone passes and my uncle was sitting with me and we were cracking jokes. And even though it was a seven day mourning period, he looked at me, he goes, I can't do mourning. He tells me, <laughs> you know, I can't mourn. I can't mourn. He goes, I have to laugh. I have to be happy. And there's a lot of depth and wisdom in that. And what it's taught me, and I hope I teach my children is that there's always a silver lining. It might be thin. It might be really, really thin but there's a silver lining out there. There's good in whatever's happening and my faith and my belief, which I didn't always have. You know, My spirituality developed when I was in the dumps, when I was in that worst place of my life. I found my own spirit and my relationship with God. And um, that's what I would love to give over to my kids. And you know, I think that my wife and I, she's amazing. I don't know how she does it. All girls, shopping, shoes, you know, whatever it might be. I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she just feeds us. She's an amazing cook. But, you know, that's what we want for our kids. We want them to believe in themselves and be able to pass it on. And if I could, you know, after a long, healthy life, be able to leave this world and know that I've left that behind, that would be the most fulfilling thing of my whole entire life. Wow. That is so inspiring. And Best of all, that's also what you're doing in your coaching. And I just want to remind the listener that if you're learning and feeling inspired and curious that you offer one-on-one -on -one sessions and group sessions and a free discovery call I saw. So if you're sitting here thinking, wow, like this man, <laughs> I can learn a lot from him, which hopefully you are at this point. 
I want to direct you to his website, which is jamelcoaching.com, which I'm going to link to in the show notes for this episode, along with everything else we've discussed. We've talked about a number of different resources. And I would really encourage you to just go read his story like I did before we started recording today, because there's so much wisdom and inspiration there. So I will direct you to all of that if you go to the show notes for this episode. Plus, the show notes have a full transcript and quotes. I've been typing all my notes and trying to think, gosh, like, how do I possibly pick a few quotes? There are so many great ones. So I will do my best, but you can read the full transcript, revisit all of this over at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you scroll down to the bottom, you will find the link to go get a discovery call to read more, to find your social media. You're also posting a lot on Instagram. You were sharing before, right? Is that your favorite social platform right now? And where- Can I be brutally honest? Please. I hate social media. (laughs) (laughs) I hate social media. I rather speak in crowds. So I hate social media. I don't like to be on social media. I don't like to post on social media. I don't want to think about what story I have on social media. I'm a people person. It's one of the reasons why if you do go to my website, you'll find that I will fly anywhere in the country for free and I will present a groups of 25 and more because we get so lost and we are so consumed with social media. And like I was telling you, it's the place that I had to shed. It's that person inside of me that I had to shed. And now I have to go be significant and stand out. And it's everything that I don't live for. So it's one of those things that just for me, it's not enjoyable, but a must. You know, not everything you do at work you love. I'm passionate about coaching. I'm passionate about people and helping them and inspiring them and, you know, helping them grow and find their potential and build relationships everywhere possible. But yeah, keep me away from Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, all those things are not for me. (laughs) I am very grateful to have Zencaster as a sponsor. They have been so supportive of the show through social media and newsletter shout outs. Plus, they have truly incredible customer service. Their all-in-one podcast production platform keeps getting better and better because they take user feedback seriously. I'm especially grateful for the HD video recording features, which makes it easy to put this show on YouTube and social media. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of their pro plan, which, as I mentioned, is what I use for this show. If you have any questions about podcasting, send me a message, and I'd be happy to share more tips and tricks. Well, I love your honesty and it's relatable. I think a lot of the listeners on the show probably feel the same way and don't want to be on there. So aside from your website, are there other places online or regular events for someone who's wanting to dig in more and they can't even wait for the time that they could schedule a a discovery call with you? We do have a blog. You can read some things on the blog. It's constantly being updated. My philosophy, which really I haven't spoken about yet, But my overall philosophy is something called MTU. And MTU stands for me, them, us. And for us to be able to develop ourselves in total, we first have to look within. First, it starts with me and developing that relationship with myself and really nurturing myself and taking care of myself and loving myself. And then the middle layer is going to be them. And them is any relationship I might have in my life. 
It could be a parent, a sibling, a coworker, a community member. It might be someone that I just run to in the supermarket, you know, a cashier that I say good morning to. But how do I interact in those relationships? How do I respond in those relationships? How do I treat others? How do others treat me? How do I feel about it? How to learn how to have a perspective of what someone else might be feeling when I'm interacting with them? And how are those relationships? And that's a lot of work. You know, that's a lot of work when you're dealing with sometimes so intimate of a relationship. And then finally, the us part is, what's my purpose? Why was I created? What can I do to be able to better the world and help the world? How can I influence others to be able to grow? And if you take those three dynamics, me, the people around me, and us as a unit in its entirety, that's my goal to be able to affect as many people on this planet as possible so that they can live better lives. To me, that's every day. That's me walking down the street. That's me talking to my friends. That's going out to dinner you know, with colleagues. To me, it's day to day. But I think first go to the website. So it's J-E-M-A-L coaching, C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G.com and read my story, read my philosophy, send me an email. We'll give you a free discovery call. I don't know if on the website, I don't remember if it was 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but let me tell you, you know, just our little secret. I'm usually on the phone with people for about an hour because I have such a passion and desire to want to be able to make them feel heard and listened to. You know, my old business skills have faded from me a little bit because when we're talking about human beings and their feelings, you know, it's kind of like this person needs help. And, you know, sometimes my wife will say to me, but did you charge them? I'm like, no. You know, so it is very personal for me. It is something like we've been talking about. I've lived through and experienced and start there. I do offer one-on-one coaching. There's packages there. I do offer group coaching so that we can help each other. We can work on the them and we can know that we're not alone in this world and that there are other people feeling what we're feeling. Most human beings are struggling with the same things. The intensity might be different, but we're generally going through the same feelings and same growing and developing a way to deal with whatever we're afraid of. And I'll travel, get me an audience or give me an opportunity, I should say, to be able to speak in front of a crowd and I'll go out there and I'll talk and I'll answer questions and be able to help as much as possible. So those are the best ways to be able to contact me and please do. You know, please reach out. I'm very accessible. You will get me. You're not going to get someone else that's answering my phone calls. You'll get me personally and we'll be able to talk and hopefully I'll be able to help you out with whatever it is that you're going through. Beautiful. Well, thank you for your overall generosity, but especially your generosity today and sharing your story and so many words of wisdom that people can take away from just this episode. And also, I just think you have this energy that gave me a very calm, joyful feeling. So thank you personally for being part of my day and uplifting me. And um, I am so excited to share this with the audience. And as I mentioned, everything you've mentioned are in one place at wellevator.com. So it will make it easy for people to get in touch with you and to learn more. And I hope that they do. You know, having me on the podcast, I really appreciate it very, very much. And it's perfect timing. The kids are probably ready to get some more dad time. So it's dad, all- <laughs> you said it was going to be two hours. It's over now. Come on, dad. That's enough. We want to run around and make noise. Yeah. Well, well, I hope that the kids go get to experience the joy that I've felt after spending some time with you. So thank you again and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. 
For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to Wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.